Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In today's podcast, we're going to have a very important conversation about suicide, which might be painful and triggering for some listeners. If you are experiencing thoughts of suicide or are worried that someone you love might be suicidal, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 988. Again, that number is 988. Help is available. We had two conversations about suicide in season one, a top-level understanding of suicidality and a stories episode speaking with people who've lost a loved one to suicide. We're taking a different look at the subject today by speaking with a clinician who works directly with children who have active suicidal ideation. Suicide remains a major public health issue. It is one of the leading causes of death in the United States, with rates that are consistently increasing. For the period between 1999 and 2019, deaths by suicide increased a tragic 35% in the United States. Public health researchers have been unable to fully explain the reason for these increases. Although the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, writes that bullying, social isolation, increase in technology and social media, increase in mental illnesses and economic recession may be factors. It's important to note that these numbers predate the COVID-19 pandemic. It still remains to be seen what effect the isolation, anxiety and loss that arose from the pandemic will have on the number of people taking their own lives, but expert predictions are grim. The National Institute of Mental Health defines suicide as death caused by self-directed injurious behavior with intent to die as a result of the behavior. A suicide attempt is defined as a non-fatal, self-directed, potentially injurious behavior with the intent to die as a result of the behavior. Lastly, suicidal ideation refers to thinking about considering or planning suicide. The very important distinction between suicide and other self-harm is the specific intent to die. That concept, the intent to die, is a difficult one to grasp. The human will to survive is a strong biological imperative that seems so contrary to suicidal intent. At the same time, the numbers tell us that this is not a rare occurrence. 
According to the Centers for Disease Control, in 2019, suicide was the 10th leading cause of death overall in the United States, representing 47,500 lost lives. This is two and a half times more than the number of deaths by homicide. Specifically speaking to youth, suicide is the second leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 24. What a tragedy that it claims the lives of so many young people. Additionally, suicide attempts and thoughts of suicide are significantly higher among youth compared to adults, according to SAMHSA. They report that in 2019, 17% of high school students seriously considered attempting suicide. 16% made a suicide plan, 9% attempted suicide, and 3% made a suicide attempt that was serious enough to require medical care. These numbers are in addition to those youth who completed suicide. In today's podcast, we're going to speak with Viviana Pereira, a therapist in the Guidance Center's Compton Clinic. Viviana serves clients in our Full Service Partnership, or FSP, program, an intensive program for the agency's most troubled children and families. The model of this program is, quote, whatever it takes, offering multidisciplinary services as often as the client requires it to avoid hospitalization or out-of-home placement and to ultimately reach stabilization. Welcome, Viviana. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Although we're both part of the Guidance Center family, we haven't met before today. For my benefit and the benefit of our listeners, will you please introduce yourself? Of course. Hello, Trisha. Thank you for having me today. I am a clinical therapist here at the Guidance Center located in the Compton location. I have a background working with kids, teens in the outpatient setting, as well as in the full service partnership program, also known as FSP. Um, I actually did FSP for about two and a half years prior to coming to the Guidance Center and now have taken on a few FSP cases here at the Guidance Center as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I thought I'd like to start maybe in getting a sense of the acuity of your caseload. Uh, We know um, from our intake department that right now, roughly 26% of our clients endorse suicidal ideation at their intake appointment, their very first appointment, which is just unprecedented to have the numbers be that high. And we also know that most of these kids land in an FSP or other intensive program. So I'm just curious, are you seeing suicidal risk in your current caseload? Yes, I am. I have a few FSP cases who have endorsed suicidal ideation. I also have a couple of outpatient clients as well who at intake have endorsed suicidal ideation. So I'm definitely seeing a lot of um, suicide risk in the population that I'm working with. Would you consider this to be at levels higher than what you would consider normal for an agency like ours? I definitely think right now with the holidays um, around the corner and with the pandemic that stopped a lot of 
us from living our normal lives. Um, the rates for suicidal risk are a little elevated compared to what we might see prior to the pandemic and prior to the holidays. Um, I think that there are a lot of kids I work with who during the holidays, it's really difficult. Maybe they've had a loss of a family member. Maybe they are in foster care. And so around this time, I definitely see a lot of elevated uh, suicide risk and a lot more clients endorsing suicidal ideation. That's very sad. You know, for for our audience, for our listeners, how do you go about assessing suicidal risk in your clients? I will start off with saying that uh, the clients I work with, they usually get pretty nervous when I have to assess uh, them for suicide. Um, it can definitely be a very scary moment. Uh, a lot of the clients think that it means they are going to automatically be hospitalized if they are getting assessed. So I usually will always let them know that hospitalization is the last resort. I try to um, tell them that, you know, we don't want them to get hospitalized, that the, assess the assessment is really for me to be able to gain an understanding of the risk and whether we can create a safety plan or find another uh, coping skill to utilize during this time. I definitely uh, try to start off with reminding them that it is a safe space and that I'm not here to judge them, that I am just here to gather information so that I can help in keeping them safe. Uh, the more honest they are with me and the more comfortable they are with me, the better I can support them. So I definitely, when I'm assessing, I think the main part is keeping them comfortable and feeling safe enough to be able to open up with me. You know, you mentioned psychiatric hospitalization. Um, you know, the criteria for when a person can be hospitalized for suicidal thoughts is very specific and very restrictive. Could you please tell our listeners like when a decision is made to initiate a 5150 or involuntary hospitalization of a client? And how do you go about doing that? Yes, definitely when we are assessing um, for a 5150 or having to hospitalize a client, I usually, as I stated earlier, always kind of have that as a last resort. This decision is often made once a clinician has determined that an individual is not safe, that if we leave them at their home, school, at the office where we see them, that they are not going to be safe. This is really when we determine that we need to hospitalize. I think that a 5150 is always a really difficult decision um, because the clinician at this point believes that the client is not safe if you know, unless they are hospitalized. Um, in my previous experience, involuntary hospitalizations have been difficult uh, as I've worked with clients who have previously been hospitalized and don't want to go back or have never been hospitalized and are really afraid of what that might look like. Uh, being hospitalized can be very scary. It's, it's definitely not a place that many kids want to end up at. They're in a place with individuals they've never met. They have to, you know, go through this uh, process of being asked multiple times about suicidal thoughts, all of that. And so I try to be honest in letting the kids I work with know that although it is a very scary situation, that it is very important that we 
keep their safety in consideration and making sure that they are, you know, at a place where they are safe and they can come back home. I think that clinicians always struggle with, you know, regardless of how many times we've done this, we always struggle with being able to place a 5150 or involuntary hospitalization just because we want to make sure that the kid is safe. But at the same time, we we don't always want them to have to go to the hospital. We want to keep them out of the hospital. So this is definitely a decision that is not easy. We consult with our supervisors. We um, Sometimes if we have an opportunity, we're able to consult with the family members as well as other clinicians to kind of get a better idea of whether this is a case where we can have them stay at their home or wherever it is that they reside. And they'll be safe? Or is this a case where they're not going to be safe and hospitalization is the best option for them? Can you say specifically what the criteria is? Yes. I know we talked about being safe, and but there, it's, it's pretty specific too about what legally we can and can't do. Could you speak to the specific criteria? Yes. So we always typically um, assess for plan intent, access to means, uh, plan meaning that they have a plan to harm themselves, uh, ideation being that they have a thought of wanting to harm themselves, um, having intent to do it, meaning that they really want to go through with this, that this is something they, they have thought about and they have an intent to harm themselves, as well as um, means, having an access to something in the home that they can harm themselves with. So we always go about asking about plan, intent, access to means. Um, we cannot, um, there's a lot of difficulties with this as sometimes clients don't want to be hospitalized, but if we determine that they're not safe, we have to do that one 5150. And sometimes the client will oppose to it. They don't want to do it, but we always contact the parents as well if, if it is a minor and talk to them about, you know, the, the safety concerns and why this might benefit them. Um, a lot of times parents that I've worked with are open to it because they want their child to be safe. They want to make sure that their child is not going to harm themselves. So definitely consulting with the family members as well, making sure that they understand the plan, that they know what is um, expected of, of the child when they are taken to the hospital. Um, but definitely following that that plan intent means um, if a client is stating that they have a plan and that they have intent to go through with this plan, that is definitely a place where we will have to hospitalize. We don't want to say, okay, you have a plan, you have intent, and you have access to something, but we'll let you stay. We'll we'll you know we'll talk to you tomorrow because that's really where it becomes a, a big risk and. If the client were to harm themselves, there are a lot of steps that we could have taken to avoid that situation. And that's that would be devastating um, yes. for sure. You know, we have so many clients um, who do have persistent thoughts of suicide without yet meeting that criteria for hospitalization that you just uh, spoke about. And this happens far more often than hospitalization itself does. How do you identify those kids and how do you 
how do you manage their care uh, while still keeping them safe? And it brings to mind a client that I had um, back in the day, a young boy who was experiencing his first psychotic breaks, actually. We were having a hard time getting him stable on meds. Um, so his um, hallucinations were persistent and so scary to him that he would uh become or get thoughts of suicide pretty persistently because he just didn't want to live that way anymore. And I remember the terror of, well, how do I keep him safe? He doesn't meet criteria. Um, so, you know, what do you do with these kids? How do you manage their care? Um, and how do you help them if you can't take the step of hospitalization? I've definitely encountered a lot of clients in FSP who have these thoughts and have, you know, persistent suicidal ideation, but they don't meet the criteria. And so hospitalization is something that is not an option at that moment. So these are usually the cases where I feel I'm able to create a safety plan with the kiddo and with the family. And if the family and the kid are open to it and willing to follow the safety plan, whether that includes calling after hours, utilizing a lockbox, using coping skills, uh, that's definitely a safety plan that the client can follow. The parent can kind of initiate that safety plan when needed. I think it's it's helpful um, to go back and use the, the Columbia suicide risk assessment um, just because it does have a lot of in-depth questions that clinicians can ask their clients. Um, if it is someone that is pers having persistent SI, then we can definitely utilize this every session to kind of gauge where the client is. Are they having actual thoughts of suicide in this moment during our session and what can we do about it? Let's look at the safety plan. Let's talk about the coping skills that we're practicing in sessions. Uh, I think having parents be actively involved is also very helpful because we see the child once, maybe twice a week, but parents can really be the ones to help them with those coping skills and implement them throughout the week when we don't see them so that it's becoming more of a routine when they are having these suicidal thoughts. They have the skills to go back to. They have the, the family or the friends even that can remind them of these coping skills. And I, I think that's really where the safety planning and having those coping skills on the safety plan, having important phone numbers that they can contact uh, for FSP, there's usually an after hours number. So definitely having all those resources on a list or on a chart or somewhere where they can access it is very helpful when working with individuals who have persistent SI. You know, there, there's a link often, I think, especially with teens between impulsivity and emotional dysregulation and suicide attempts. Like a client can be in session and you're assessing them. And in that moment, there is not an imminent risk of suicide. But later that night, there's a fight with mom or something happens. Um, I had a client like that. I still remember her name, and this was decades ago. And I, I it was... Um, I felt such a responsibility because she could flip so quickly from not being suicidal to being suicidal based on what was happening 
in her home or in her world in that moment. It was very impulsive. So how do you keep a client safe when they can flip so quickly? I have I have had many experiences where I have a session and it, it goes really well and the client is receptive to all of the skills we're learning. They're, you know, reporting that they're having a really good day. And then I leave and I get a call a few hours later or even, you know, I've had a case where I've left and 30 minutes later I've gotten a call and a client is in crisis. So I, I definitely think that this work is a little scary because they can be reporting that they're okay. And then next thing you know, like you said, it's a switch and they're in crisis mode, whether it be an argument that has happened or um, something that triggered them in the home or outside the home. I think that with these clients, um, it's, it's really important for us to be able to understand that it's okay to have different emotions. That I think that's the beauty of being a human is that we can have all these different levels of emotions at any time in the day, um, at any point. And it's okay to have those feelings. I've had clients that come in and, and they're feeling good and later they're not and they feel guilty for not being okay a couple minutes later. And I always remind them that it is okay and I validate their feelings. I think that um, something that I do a lot with the clients I work with um, in these situations is being able to give psychoeducation to the caregivers, uh, reminding them that although times are a little bit difficult, you know, and, and things might be good and then turn out to be bad, that it's okay to have those moments. I will always um, help clients in, in being able to utilize those coping skills, use the techniques. I, I remind caregivers of those coping skills and techniques so that they can implement them in the case that they I leave and they go into crisis. I think also what I've done, and, and maybe this is just me going out of my way, but I have had instances where I go back to the home and, and I have a whole other session with them about whatever it was that triggered them. Because I think that having that ability to go back to them and, and be able to be there for them and walk them through what triggered you, what coping skills can we use to this? It, it really allows the client to feel heard and to feel that they do have someone that they can rely on, someone that they can talk about these difficult moments with. Um, even something like a phone call, you know, if, if something comes up, giving them a call, hey, I, I heard this is happening, let's talk about it. It's, I think for me, it's really about just being present for those kids, regardless of if they were fine a minute ago and they're not fine now. I think, again, we have so many different emotions and feelings that we experience throughout a day and we definitely have to be a little more um, relaxed with ourselves and, and not be as hard when we are feeling okay and the next thing we're not because there's all these type of emotions that happen and reminding my clients that it's okay to go through this roller coaster of emotions. And as long as they're reaching out for support, I will be there for them. That's really beautiful. Um, I'm, you definitely embody the whatever it takes philosophy. I really appreciate that, Viviana. Um, you know, you talked about this a bit, but could you talk specifically about what is safety planning and how you use it in your treatment with these kids? Yes. So safety planning is basically creating a written document uh, that includes people, 
places, coping skills, uh, important numbers to assist a client when they feel they may be going into crisis. Uh, this document highlights anything and everything that a client uh, may need to support them through a crisis. I utilize safety planning to help clients know who or what they can use when they are in crisis. Uh, in a state of crisis, it can be really difficult to remember techniques, to remember coping skills or people that you can contact. And so having a safety plan readily available to you is definitely a very important part of treatment. I always encourage my clients to put the safety plan on their refrigerator, in their bedroom, anywhere really where they will visibly see it and have access to it right away. I had one client who carried their safety plan in their binder in their backpack because it was just easy to take out whenever they did have a crisis. Um, I think safety planning is something that is just so small. It is a, you know, a document. It can be typed up, it can be written, but it makes such a big difference. It, it is something that I think if you were outside of this profession, you would think, well, it's just a, a paper with words, but it's it's really something that goes a long way for the, the kids we work with. It's something that they can look back at and see, I have all these coping skills. I have all these you know techniques and things that I can use. So let me try some of them. I have these people I can contact. Um, and I think that some kids actually have a lot of fun creating coping skills. They get creative with it. Uh, I like to get creative with the coping skills. And so having something that is not just going to help you de-escalate, but also have fun while doing it, I think is is very crucial in treatment. I love that. And I I imagine having that piece of paper helps the child feel more in control, more powerful. I can do this. Look, there's this whole list of things I can do. And it decreases, I would think, to the level of helplessness that, that they're feeling um, with the onslaught of their emotions. This discussion about suicide comes as U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued a public health advisory on the mental health challenges facing youth in America. In it, he notes that one in three high school students and 50% of female students report persistent feelings of hopelessness and sadness, both key risk factors for depression and suicidality amongst the age group most at risk of taking their own lives. He writes, mental health challenges in children, adolescents, and young adults are real and they are widespread. But more importantly, they are treatable and often preventable. He states further, if we seize this moment, step up for our children and their families in their moment of need and lead with inclusion, kindness, and respect, we can lay the foundation for a healthier, more resilient, and more fulfilled nation. Interestingly, the Center for Disease Control has also issued very strong positions on mental health and suicide prevention, including a three-year suicide prevention strategic plan with a vision statement of no lives lost to suicide. Like the Surgeon General's advisory, this plan is a call to action. In it, they list key strategies to prevent suicide, 
amongst them many we all can adopt as individuals, loved ones, neighbors, and community members. Specifically, some of the key elements of suicide prevention that we all have a hand in may include the creation of protective environments, promoting interpersonal connectedness, modeling coping and problem-solving skills, and identifying and supporting people at risk. I like to think this is a call to action most of us would be eager to embrace, knowing that we might save a life. At the same time, that means we need to know how to recognize when a person is struggling and know what to do to help them. Viviana, you know, I read a lot as I was doing research for this, and so much that I read said protective environments, interpersonal connectedness, those are things to reducing suicide rates. Um, for us to step up and provide those things, that means we have to talk about suicide. Um, and despite public health efforts, I think there's still a lingering perception that we shouldn't talk about it. It's too triggering. It might put an idea in somebody's head. What do you say to that? I 110% disagree with that. <laughs> um, although suicide is a very difficult topic to discuss, having that discussion can be very vital in saving someone's life. I was told by a previous supervisor that if a client does not have suicidal ideation, simply asking them about it will not magically change their mind or put that thought into their mind. If they state that they have that suicidal ideation after, it's probably because they've already had that thought. And you starting that conversation with them can be really crucial in having them feel more comfortable talking about their experience, what is triggering them, what is going on that is causing them to have these thoughts. I think that a lot of us get afraid. And even as a clinician, sometimes I get afraid to have to talk about these these very difficult things, but it's it's very crucial. And I think that even offering a space for someone to be able to share these thoughts that they're having without feeling judged, without feeling in, like it's a tense situation, I think that offers a really, really crucial part of them being able to seek treatment and feel comfortable enough to talk about the, the feelings and thoughts that they're having. You know, uh, among our listeners, we have educators, youth workers, we're all neighbors and community members. Um, so any of us could at some point come into contact with a child who has suicidal thoughts. You don't have to be a therapist to be around these children. They're amongst us. Can you help our listeners understand some of the signs that someone's struggling and perhaps suicidal? Like what should they look for and what should they do? I think the common signs that I've seen in some of the kids that I work with is reporting, feeling like they're a burden to others, sleeping too little or too much, isolating, withdrawing, whether that's from friends, family members, changes in mood. Some individuals report feeling more irritable, uh, losing interest in things and, you know, activities that maybe they once found enjoyable. Um, and of course, the more immediate signs such as talking about dying, talking about feeling hopeless. 
I would encourage anyone who believes they know someone who is having suicidal thoughts to talk to them about it um, and encourage them to get help. It's definitely not an easy conversation, but with the kids I've worked with who had suicidal thoughts, they had shared feeling relieved to be able to share this big secret, so to speak, um, that they were holding on to. It was a moment for them to let go of all of these bottled feelings and really be able to share it with someone who was actually wanting to hear this and, and wanting to be present for them and be able to give them that extra support that they might need. I, I agree with that. And on the flip side, too, you know, I've never asked a child who didn't have suicidal ideation where that child then was upset that I asked. I think mm -hmm. they it's always been received as this person's caring about me. Um, and I, I think that's that's really important as well. You know, What's the role of parents in assisting these kids who have persistent suicidal ideation? You know, if role modeling and uh, role modeling coping and problem solving skills is so important to this. And we know a lot of the parents we see struggle with that themselves. So how, what's the role of parents and how do we get our parents amongst our client base to step up and help their kids? I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think that parents being involved in a kid's treatment plays such a big role. I think bigger than the parent even knows. I know it can be scary, but to have a parent who is involved and willing to assist their child in whatever way they can is crucial. And I think when a child sees that their parent or their caregiver is involved and wanting to be there for them, it can spark some hope for that child. Um, I you know, will admit, even as a clinician, modeling these skills in sessions can be difficult sometimes. So I can't imagine how difficult that could be for a parent to try this with their own child. It takes practice and it won't be easy. But just even the act of trying, I think, makes such a big difference in that child's life to be able to see that they are loved and that their family wants them there and that they're going to put in this effort to really be there for the child and be involved in treatment, it makes such a big difference. And I think that having parents also be involved in the treatment is very beneficial for the parent themselves. They they learn a lot about techniques. They learn about the interventions that we're utilizing and how they can best support their child. Because I can imagine that for a parent, having a child who is suicidal, it, it can be very scary and, and they might feel hopeless themselves. They might feel helpless and not know what they can do for their child. And so to sit in those sessions and hear all of these techniques they can implement, it might make them feel more confident in having these tough conversations and implementing these skills when they're outside and, and in the real world. I think that that's so incredibly important that, you know, the parents can learn the coping and the problem solving along with the child. And I can't imagine how, you know, I'm, I'm a mom of 19 year old twins. I can't, can't imagine the terror if one of them were, were suicidal. Um, do you see a role of trauma in persistent suicidal ideation? Yes, definitely. Uh, trauma 
comes in many different forms. And with trauma, there can be feelings of neglect. There can be flashbacks, having difficulties, trusting people, anxiety, depression. And with all of these feelings that come up, we often see that those who have experienced trauma can begin to feel suicidal. The trauma can be so unbearable that it pushes individuals to have these suicidal thoughts because of the constant unwanted feelings that they're having. I think that um, the aftermath of trauma definitely is one that is very difficult to, to deal with. Um, and it's important, I think, for clinicians to also remember that we can't begin to treat or help alleviate suicidal ideation without first targeting the underlying cause, which in many cases can be traumatic experiences. It's really important that we target the root of the suicidal ideation because if we're just focused on the suicidal thoughts and, and only talking about that and, and not what's causing it or what's triggering them, we're not going to get anywhere. I think that being able to really identify any previous traumatic experiences and the aftermath of those experiences can really help us in alleviating those suicidal thoughts. Could you share a success story with us? I had one client in particular, um, and I, I love sharing this story. He's always the one that I go to when I'm asked about success stories. Um, in 2020, he came in for an intake, and at that time, he reported to me that in 2021, he was going to kill himself. He said that he was giving me one year. He looked me right in my eyes and said, I'm giving you one year wow. to help me. Yeah, the it was a very, very um, scary moment for myself as a clinician um, to have this, at the time he was 14, um, to have this 14 year old look me in the eyes and say, I am going to kill myself if you do not help me within a year. Um, and so it, it took a very long time for me to build that trust with him to get him to be open to the suggestions I had. Um, luckily, his mom was very, very involved and would always encourage him to practice coping skills when he was having those suicidal thoughts. She was always the one that would call me when things would come up. Um, you know, I showed up even when he didn't want me to. And, and I continue to work with him and his family and providing these skills. And I remember even being on the phone with him at 9 p.m., 10 p.m., just listening to him when he needed someone to listen. And I remember in those moments thinking, wow, I, I gained his trust. It, it took a while, but we got there. Um, and now here we are in 2022, and he's doing really, really great in school. I still keep in contact with his mom. She's always sending me updates on all of the successes that he's having. He's really looking forward to eventually attending a community college. He's joining clubs at school. And it's just really amazing to see that within two years, it, it was, you know, a started off very, very difficult, but eventually it, it got to a place where he's happy and he you know he keeps in contact with me as well and here and there he'll send me a text saying hey look you know i i did this or i got an award and so it's really nice to be able to work with individuals who 
just start off with these very, very difficult feelings and get to a point where they're proud of themselves and where they can live a happy life. And, you know, I, I know that there will still be days where he has moments that are difficult and, you know, feelings of sadness, because as every human does, we always experience a moment of sadness. And I think for him to have those skills and be able to sit with those feelings that come up here and there, but be able to push through them and and continue to see the light at the end of the tunnel it's it definitely makes me feel that you know he he trusted the process and at the end of the day he's happy and i think that a lot of it was him i i give myself credit but i give more of the credit to him because he really showed up for himself and he again trusted that process I, I love that story. Not only is it 2022 when he is still alive, but he's thriving and that's what we want for, for all of our, our kids. That's such a great story. But, you know, I have to ask you when he first sat across from you and said, I'll give you one year or in 2021, I'm going to complete suicide. You know, I've done those assessments. I've assessed for suicide risk, initiated safety plans, initiated hospitalization so many times. And so I know what it requires. Like in that moment, you have to have this calm, clear headedness. You really have to lean into the client's experience. So I guess two questions for you. How do you maintain your calm when you're working to help save a life? And then secondly, what toll does this take on you? I won't lie. The first couple of times that I had to assess for suicide risk, I was terrified. I felt like I was all over the place. I was like, oh my gosh, this, you know, this kid's life is in my hands right now. And it is definitely a really, really scary moment to be in. I think that what has kept me calm is knowing that I have my supervisor, I have other clinicians that I can consult with in those moments to kind of give me that okay to say, you know, this, this, you're doing it right. Just continue doing what you're doing. Ask these questions, follow up with this. I think having a really good support system in regard to the coworkers I have is really, really crucial in keeping me calm. Um, I, I think that having those individuals to kind of be, you know, there to help me in these moments has kept me calm. I, I think also knowing that I'm doing this because I am trying to help this child. I am providing them with every ounce of myself to help save them. I think that really keeps me calm and in a strange way because it, it is a lot of pressure. But I think that this is a job I really enjoy. It's it's more of a calling for me. And so to know that I am here and I'm supporting someone who maybe doesn't have anybody else to support them, it, it definitely keeps me going and it, it keeps me feeling clear headed. Um, and the toll that this takes on me, you know, again, talking about suicide is never an easy conversation. And you know, there's days where I get home and I'm so exhausted and my family or my friends want to talk to me and I'm just like, leave me alone. I, I don't have any more room to to listen to anyone right now. Um, and so it, it definitely is a, a really, really difficult job. It, it comes with a lot of 
having to hold space for other individuals. I, I mean, I work Monday through Friday, so almost every hour of Monday through Friday, I'm holding space for someone and, and listening to their stories. And so it, it can definitely be really difficult. But I think that I've found what works for me and, and engaging in self-care and how to kind of, you know, keep myself replenished so that I can show up for the kids every single time and, and really be present to hear them out. You know, your work, Viviana, it's so important. And I can hear in your words how much you care about these kids. And it's really inspiring me. Um, but I mean, you're working to help save the lives of people who are living with despair. And so that's a tough job. What are the, I always end on a positive note though. I think that's important. So for you, what are the unexpected bright sides or what, what gives you hope in this work that you do? I think hearing the success, um, stories and that my clients have, um, even even if it's something that seems very small, it's very big for them. I have clients who will come up to me and tell me about one really good thing that has happened at school or a good grade that they got at school, or even if, you know, something really went well while they were out with their family. And it's, it's always those little moments that I, and I know my clients probably get annoyed of this, but every time they share one little good thing, I blow it up into this huge, massive thing. I, I had a client the other day who actually told me um, that they made a new friend and, you know, he, he has really bad anxiety. And so when I heard that, I, spent I think like 30 minutes just praising him and saying how excited I was that he made a new friend I think I was more excited for him than he was for himself um, I think that having those little moments where you're seeing progress and and I think any progress is progress it, it doesn't have to be this big life altering thing that happens and for me to be able to be a part of those experiences is definitely what is giving me hope to continue do the, to do this job. I, I, again, this is a calling for me and I really enjoy hearing the little successes every single time I get to see my clients. I love getting texts from parents saying, my child did X, Y, Z, and I'm so excited. I'm so proud of them. Um, it's always those little moments that I hold on to and, and really remember that this, this work is really important and that if I could you know, save the world one kid at a time, then it's all worth it. Well, I am right with you. I, I really uh, just value what you just said. Thank you. And, and just thank you in general, Viviana, for joining us today. This was a really important and scary conversation. And I just really thank you for the incredible work you do as well. It is so important. You have such a tough population and your work is to the betterment of us all. And I thank you for it. Thank you so much. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. 
All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.